You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. It was not precisely a vision, like some sighting of the Madonna in a tree trunk, but rather a certainty, a declarative sentence that entered his brain. Unlike other lightning strike ideas, this one did not fade and blur, but retained its surety and concrete quality. Later, Marconi would say there was a divine aspect to it, as though he had been chosen over all others to receive the idea. At first, it perplexed him, the question, why him, why not Oliver Lodge, or for that matter, Thomas Edison? The idea arrived in the most prosaic of ways. In that summer of 1894, when he was 20 years old, his parents resolved to escape the extraordinary heat that had settled over Europe by moving to higher and cooler ground. They fled Bologna for the town of Biela in the Italian Alps, just below the Santuario di Europa, a complex of sacred buildings devoted to the legend of the Black Madonna. During the family's stay, he happened to acquire a copy of a journal called Il Nuovo Cimento, in which he read an obituary of Heinrich Hertz, written by Augusto Righi, a neighbor and a physics professor at the University of Bologna. Something in the article produced the intellectual equivalent of a spark, and in that moment caused his thoughts to realign, like the filings in a lodge coherer. My chief trouble was that the idea was so elementary, so simple in logic, that it seemed difficult to believe no one else had thought of putting it into practice, he said later. In fact, Oliver Lodge had, but he had missed the correct answer by a fraction. The idea was so real to me that I did not realize that to others the theory might appear quite fantastic. What he hoped to do, expected to do, was to send messages over long distances through the air using Hertz's invisible waves. Nothing in the laws of physics, as then understood, even hinted that such a feat might be possible. Quite the opposite. To the rest of the scientific world, what he now proposed was the stuff of magic shows and seances, a kind of electric telepathy. His great advantage, as it happens, was his ignorance and his mother's aversion to priests. Eric Larson is the author of the nonfiction works Isaac's Storm and the Devil in the White City. His new book is Thunderstruck. Welcome to the program, Eric. Thank you very much. Eric, I'd like you to set this book up for us. Give us the, the two stories that intertwine. Yeah, it's about, uh, it's, uh, very broadly, it's about two men and how their lives intersected during what I like to consider the, uh, and I think arguably is the case, the greatest criminal chase in history. One of the men is uh, Guillermo Marconi, of course, the man who gave us wireless. The other somewhat less known, at least in this country, Holly Harvey Crippen, an American doctor who moved to London and did something quite horrific, but was then um, captured thanks to Marconi and his technology. Your book starts out, I'd like to talk about the history here. We start out in the Victorian era, which had one sort of feel. And in the midst of what happens in your book, we move to the Edwardian era. So I'd like you to tell us a little bit about the difference between these two periods in English history and how that plays in to the, the themes of your book. I think the greatest difference between the two periods, I mean, of course, to some extent, there, there's, it, it's sort of a seamless transition from Victorian to Edwardian. But the thing about the Edwardian era that I think... Um, really marks the, 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 the time is the sort of sense that Britain, which for so long had felt, felt itself to be the, you know, the god of everything, that the unchallenged empire, that there was this, there was beginning to, to, to um, there, a feeling was 
beginning to become more commonplace, that maybe Britain had seen her best days, that things were beginning to fray a bit. Germany was on the rise. There is always throughout that period, there's, now that we, in retrospect, when you look back, you can sort of see this kind of persistent drumbeat in the background of, of sort of darkness yet to come, you know, but, but, but at the same time, in that Edwardian period, there was just this brilliant sense that 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 life was good. Things were starting to fray, but life was good. It was sort of the last golden afternoon. Marconi was an inventor, but he wasn't a scientist. And one of the things that strikes me about Marconi is that he he reminds me of a of a dot com startup guy, and this. It happens all through this book. As I read this book, and one of the things I really liked that you never talked about this, but no reader can read this and help but think it, is that there are a million modern parallels to the story in this book. That's exactly right. And and you hit on something that, that, you know, was somewhat... It's a little frustrating for me, but also it had to be. And that is, I could, of course, I could not say that anywhere that this guy was sort of the prototype of the sort of the dot com startup character, because then it would take you out of what I like to think of as the nonfiction dream. The point of this book is that you begin it, and you sink into the past, and you stay there. So by saying something like dot com, you know, on page like one fifty, would be very, very, very jarring. But that is exactly right. This. Marconi is really sort of the um, the prototype of all that came much much later. I think of him as, in fact, as a very Bill Gatesian character. One of the things that Marconi was good at was the self promotion aspect. He had genius appears to have two different components. There's intelligence. And there's luck, but there's also showmanship, isn't there? Showmanship was a big part of it, and it was absolutely necessary in this case for this technology because, because I mean, it's hard for us to realize how novel wireless was um, in that era because today it's ubiquitous for us. But if you can imagine back to the time before, I mean, it was such a shocking concept that people sort of dismissed it as, you know, possibly that... that that Marconi was a charlatan, that maybe this was, and others sort of felt that maybe there was a supernatural element to the whole thing. It was, it was that shocking a thing. And because of that, there was, just, there was just resistance everywhere to the idea that you could actually send signals through some invisible means to a point beyond the horizon. And it wasn't just the lay people who were sort of skeptical initially, but you know, established physicists um, said this was impossible. You know, the laws of physics as understood in the Victorian era when Marconi first enters the scene held that it was impossible to send electromagnetic waves, you know, anywhere but perhaps, say, half a mile. So you had this skepticism, and then you had Marconi who, who happily had this natural ability to, to attract attention, to... to establish, to do demonstrations that ideally would help people recognize how powerful this medium was. And even then, he had to fight his entire career through, through the first portion of his, his career. And in fact, arguably, the events in this book are what really put wireless across the line into complete credibility. Tell us a little bit about the background of some of his competitors, in particular Oliver Lodge, I found a fascinating character. Yeah, Oliver Lodge is, is very, I, I think in some ways also kind of a, a tragic character. He was, I 
the foremost physicist in, in Britain. He was, um, at that time, in the 1890s, he was immensely popular as a lecturer. And remember, this is the age of you know, the Christmas lectures at the Royal Institution and, and so forth, which were you know, just avidly attended by lay folk. Um, it was not scientists talking to scientists. This was sort of the heyday of the great scientist you know, who could speak to the lay folks and, and make them swoon. You know? Oliver Lodge even looked the part. He was, he was huge. He was six feet four. He had a bald head, gray beard. He just looked like the imperious. You know, so that if you had to think of what would be the ideal look for sort of the top British physicist, it would be Oliver Lodge. But Oliver Lodge, reflecting his era, was also he was also a very active member of something called the Society for Psychical Research, which was a group that had sort of set out to explore psychic and paranormal phenomena, to not to prove it, not to flog any agenda, but to study this because there have been too many, so many reports of ghosts and so forth. And in fact, the Society for um, for Psychical Research had a committee uh, called the Committee on Haunted Houses, and Lodge was a very active member of this society, and he actually really believed that seances were the real deal in the right situations. I mean, he was a real believer that. And, and became more and more so over time that there was indeed an afterlife and that, you know, the, the, the place where the soul would reside ultimately might one day be discovered. So he had these two sides, which were not uncommon in Britain in the 1890s. I mean, some of the, some of the foremost statesmen were also members of the Society for Psychical Research and William James, the pioneering Harvard uh, psychologist, um, uh, there was a, a remarkable quote by him where he essentially says that, you know, all it takes is, is finding one medium who seems to be the real deal, um, and you sort of disprove all those who say that, you know, mediums and seances are hokum. And he thought he had actually found that one medium. Um, but anyway, this is this interesting yin and yang about, you know, hardcore science and this belief in ghosts. I just loved it. Well. They were both invisible phenomena at the exactly. time, and that's what one of the things that's really fascinating. This idea of of the invisible that that permeated the air. Nobody knew what was going on there. That's what was so shocking about wireless, invisibly, from one point to the next, not just across open space, but you know, seemingly through doors, you know, through obstacles, you could communicate with someone. And that was really shocking. It took a lot to convince people that Marconi wasn't somehow cheating. Being aware of that, in fact, that at one of his one of his one of his early talks, um, demonstrations at the Royal Institution, um, he had placed a receiver into a essentially a box, um, and anticipating the sort of skepticism of people in the audience. Um, during it with Oliver Lodge. At this point, Oliver Lodge and Marconi were, were allies. Oliver Lodge would send a signal, and it would enter this box, ring a bell, um, and what Marconi sensed was, ah, but that's not enough. We need to be able to walk around the auditorium with this box to prove to people that this is not just some, some hoax. But it was this invisible thing that was really, really shocking to people, and that's that's where people thought... Some actually thought, hmm, maybe this would be a way to communicate with ghosts at last, you know. And part of this continuum from the belief in the supernatural 
to this invisible physics, it goes through to the stage magicians, including Neville Maskelin, who um, was also very interested in wireless and later became an inventor. And those kind of showmanship techniques that, that Maskeline used were employed by Marconi to great effect. Yeah, yeah. It was, it, it, that's one of my favorite episodes in the whole thing, by the way, is that ne- Neville Maskelin, who was a magician in his own right, and he and a, a partner ran the quite, uh, quite famous uh, Egyptian hall and uh, where they, had, they, would, they would deliberately try to achieve the same effects as mediums at seances in order to show that all mediums were frauds. By recreating the effects, they hoped to show the world that you know there was no such thing as a as a as a seance that was the real deal. The proto James Randi. Yeah, it, it, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and uh, boy, Neville Maskelin had a, had a real flair, and so and he was very skeptical of Marconi and his claims. And there is one prank that he pulled on Marconi that I just think is absolutely precious, and that's where he set up, um, unbeknownst to Marconi and. Uh, and uh, Professor Fleming, who at that point was his his chief science advisor, unbeknownst to them, he had set up a transmitter um, near at hand to the Royal Institution, and uh, had set out to interrupt their experiment with wireless by sending uh, sending various messages through, including long quotes from Shakespeare and this uh, this one sort of sort of bit of kind of kind of doggerel um, aimed at uh, aimed at Marconi and it was really a charming thing I mean this, this was like two showmen squaring off and you know, I don't want to give too much away but it was a, it was a charming episode one thing about Marconi was for all his intuitive ideas of showmanship his willingness to go against his own ignorance one part of his own ignorance that he never really understood was his ignorance of people and their relationships. Yes, it's a very interesting kind of set of opposites. On the one hand, he, he was quite brilliant about sensing what an audience would want. He could also be very, very charming, apparently, um, with women. Women found him immensely attractive. He also had a capacity to retain male employees and to draw their, their loyalty. But he also had this other side, this sort of social obliviousness that was sort of, in a way, kind of an echo of what we today would call Asperger's syndrome, this sort of inability to pick up cues from other people to, or, 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 you know, to, to sort of sense when he might be treading too hard on the things that, that, that they needed from him emotionally and otherwise. It was an interesting kind of a dichotomy. Well, it caused him a lot of professional problems, too, didn't it? He alienated people he needed to have with him. He alienated people that he needed to have with him, one of them being Oliver Lodge, who was initially his patron, um, and um, who then became one of his most ardent opponents, which was very... That whole saga was so surprising to me. I mean, you know, you, when you think about Marconi, I, I, I don't know about everybody else, but I always sort of think, well, okay... Sixth grade science, Marconi, wireless, done. But then to find this whole saga um, of of uh, Oliver Lodge and his initial patronage, and then opposition, um, and then all the other characters also sort of played into that. This this poor Professor Fleming who became uh, an ardent supporter of Marconi, but was desperate for credit for himself and never got it. You know, never got it, and eventually became kind of. 
an opponent of Marconi's also. I mean, all these sort of cross currents at work and, and all made much worse because of the way Marconi was, because of that element of his character, this what I refer to as social obliviousness. It's interesting, too, that frankly, I always thought Marconi, as you said, Marconi, radio, done. But there was a lot of competition. There were a lot of people going after this. This was like a vicious clash of corporate uh, investments, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, in in the very beginning, it was just, it was really just Marconi in terms of thinking about a practical means of communication. That was his, his thing. Of course, you know, then you get into, you know, there are, to this, to this day, there are many who say, oh, well, Tesla deserves credit or, you know, this or that person deserves credit for inventing wireless. But, but one thing is absolutely clear that Marconi had this conception of a practical means of communication and developed it. And that's what we have we have today. Initially, even though he was terrified that some competitor somewhere would break out and take the business from him, initially he really was very much the pioneer, the leader, and he, he, would, he would assert and consolidate that dominance through some of these spectacular demonstrations. I mean, there was still, again, huge skepticism, but he was making, making progress. Inevitably, the, the, the competition that he feared did begin to arise and was very, very, um, very sort of robust, um, mostly, from, mostly from America. Um, and, and even in that sort of represents kind of a, an analog to contemporary high-tech industries. You know, somebody gets an idea, let's say the, you know, the Palm Pilot, and suddenly, you know, you've got Palm Pilots and Palm Pilot clones and so forth. And, and can the leader maintain that? That, that lead. So Marconi was just sort of transfixed with the idea that, that he had to be the first to do everything. He was driven. And one of the things that he felt would absolutely consolidate his, his power was the thing that all of physics had rejected outright, was this idea that he could send a message across the ocean, which is really what the Marconi narrative in the book focuses on in the most detail. It's not a biography, God forbid, of Marconi. It is, it is really a detailed look at that, that tremendous heroic effort to do something that only he, truly, only he believed was possible. Not just believed, knew was possible. When everyone else in the world was saying, there's no way, there's no way. You think about the courage that that takes. When you're, when you're talking about a company that is is on sort of fragile ground, and a company that is going to have to invest, you know, the equivalent of hundreds of millions of dollars today in this effort, and you think, wow, this guy was was quite courageous, or merely oblivious to to the needs of others, you know, to to the needs of his board to feel content. I don't know, but it was a fascinating sort of thing. I mean, talk about high wire, high technology, entrepreneurial skills. They one thing I found really interesting was they used a lot of legal tactics to protect themselves, didn't they? They did. They did. Um, I have to emphasize though that that I tried to stay as much as possible out of the hardcore patent and so forth litigation. I mean, I swore going into this that this was going to be a book about human effort and struggle, and I'm going to leave the patent stuff to the attorneys and to the to the law books and so forth because you could write you could write a 1,000-page book about all the patent litigation that has, over the years, from day one, sort of 
and clouded wireless. But yes, I mean, Marconi knew early on that he had to fight also, not just not just in terms of technology, but in terms of sort of legal buffers as well. Let's talk a little bit about Crippen. Yes. He's, he isn't very well known in, the, in this country. Not in this country. But he's well known in, in the UK. And yes. Tell us a little bit about him. He was a really interesting character as well. Yeah, yeah. He is, he is first of all, I, I, I think it's fair to say that in Britain, he is the second most famous murderer after, of course, our friend Saucy Jack. In America, he's much less known. His name was Holly Harvey Crippen. He, he was a um, physician trained at the University of, of Michigan. Tell us a little a and, bit about medicine at this time. That's a kind of an interesting. <laughs> yeah, medicine was was really a, in, in sort of an, an odd moment. Homeopathic medicine was a very big thing at this point, which was this idea that 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 if you treated, well, let's say you treated an illness um, that had, say, a symptom of a rash, if you could somehow chemically or otherwise induce that same rash, you might actually be treating. The illness. I mean, it's a very odd sort of. The, the the guiding philosophy was like cures like, and this was a very very sort of prominent sort of um, way of thinking about medicine at the time. That's really how he was he was he was trained was trained in, in, in homeopathic medicine. Homeopathic medicine began to come on sort of hard times, and 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 Crippen as a physician actually began then sort of sort of sagged into kind of a less savory side of the business, which is making patent medicines, you know, things that were essentially fraudulent medicines. Um, and in, in, not in his case, but often enough, uh, potentially very dangerous <laughs> patent medicines. But Crippen was, um, he was an American doctor. He fell in love. Um, a woman came to his office, eventually took the name Bell. She was robust. She was she was large. She was sexy for the period. She was also seventeen years old, but clearly experienced in in the ways of, of sex and so forth. And he fell in love with her, and eventually asked her to uh, soon afterwards asked her to to marry him. And she said yes, not because she fell in love with this guy, because I mean he was he was sort of a meek and mild little character, very very nice man, but certainly not the sort of you know handsome you know. Clark Gable type. But he asked her to marry. She said yes. And I believe she said yes because he offered security and he also offered her something she really hoped for, which was the opportunity to learn to sing opera so that she could eventually be one of the great operatic divas of the world. Unfortunately, she had no talent. Um, always a problem. Always a problem. And over time, this became clearer and clearer and clearer. Um, his his patent medicine company, uh, Munyans, eventually sent him to London. She tried to continue her singing lessons. She abandoned those. She went to London with him. She turned her attention to variety, which was sort of vaudeville, the British version of vaudeville. And she became a, a variety singer, but again, had absolutely no talent even for that. As her career ambitions were frustrated, their marriage began to degrade in a very, I think, striking and kind of charming way, leading, of course, to something quite cataclysmic in there, in the annals of murder. But along the way, Crippen, who was feeling more and more oppressed, fell in love. I mean, it's the age-old story. Fell in love with his secretary, Ethel Lenev, who was quite beautiful, quite striking, and really a very contemporary character, actually. Somebody we all, I think, if you read her memoir, you, you could read that and not feel that it was at all dated. You could feel as though somebody had written that yesterday. 
And it seemed almost as if she had a more modern look about her as well. She had a very modern look, and she had a very modern sensibility. And you know, one of the things that I, that I find very compelling about this era, you know, people assume that the Victorian era was completely buttoned up about sex, that there, as if there were no sex. Nobody knows where the people came from that followed, but there was no sex in the Victorian era. The thing that I find time and time again, having done three books now in this, I mean, by sheer accident, actually, but having done three books now in this era from, you know, the 1890s on to, like, the early Edwardian period, there's a lot of sex going on, a lot of sex going on, only they did, they, the difference is they didn't talk about it. But here was Ethel Lenev, who was perfectly willing to fall into a very physical relationship with, you know, with Crippen, a married man, despite the, the you know, what we think were these sort of absolute strictures of the time. So she was a very contemporary person. She looked, if you saw her on the street today, you would not say, oh, that's a character from the 19th century you know, or the early 20th. She would look like somebody you would know today. I, I'd like to talk a little bit about the way you created these books, this book, Thunderstruck and the Devil in the White City. When I first saw The Devil in the White City, my first thought was, all right, somebody's done a nonfiction version of The Alienist, which is a, a book I really loved. And, and so I'm wondering, ha, had you ever seen The Alienist or... or well, you is know, it, it, it's funny you mention that because, um, in fact, The Alienist was the inspiration, in a sense, for this book, for Devil in the White City, because, you know, back in 1994, soon after that book came out by Caleb Carr, it's a fantastic book. It's a novel. The Alienist is a novel about a serial killer in old New York, and I loved that book. And what I loved about it was this sense of having left our present time, fallen back into a sort of infinitely, in some ways, more compelling and naive and charming period than, than today. And what I love was its evocation of that period, a time when Teddy Roosevelt was the, was the commissioner of police, when he really was the commissioner of police in New York. Um, Jacob Reese was running around writing about poverty. It was just a really compelling period. So I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to try to write a nonfiction book about a nonfiction murder and try to evoke the same thing? Now, the path forward was much more contorted than that. I mean, I actually, it's funny, I, 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 I took out a book called The Encyclopedia of Murder. You know, how, how basic can you get? And I started just reading about murders. Came to the protagonist in The Devil in the White City, um, whose, uh, whose uh, borrowed name was Holmes, real name Mudgett. Now, I don't know if I came to him in the H's or the M's. I'm not sure where he was, but I came to him eventually. And I have to say, I was not interested in writing about him because... It's so weird, so sort of bizarre. I didn't want to write crime porn. I wanted to write something more mannered, something along the lines of, I mean, it didn't exist at the time that I was looking, but something along the lines of Gosford Park, you know, that kind of thing. But I did, find, I did find one murder that seemed quite compelling. I started getting into it, um, and it had, oddly enough, a hurricane connection. And that was the storm that wiped out Galveston in 1900. I became so obsessed with the hurricane I dropped the murder book, wrote a book that became um, Isaac's Storm. Once again, I'm looking for an idea. I thought again about Holmes. Didn't want to do a book about him still. Didn't want to do crime porn, like I said. But there was always that stuff about the World's Fair of 1893. There was these, these little glancing references. And I've since found that anybody who's written about Holmes in the past mentioned the fair in passing. Anybody who wrote about the fair maybe mentioned Holmes in passing. So I started reading about the World's Fair of 1893 in Chicago, 
and I instantly fell in love with it. I mean, just I think the first thing I read was that that one of the first things that I read was that juicy fruit gum was introduced to people at the World's Fair of 1893, and that's one of those little facts that just lights up something in your mind. Like who knew, you know, that this gum, you know, was first introduced to consumers way back. You know, like a hundred years ago, shredded wheat was the same thing. The zipper, you know, first made its appearance. I, I just loved it, and then I, I saw it sort of came to me almost. I'm mean, talking about Marconi and his divine inspirations and so forth. I mean, I don't know what made me think this, but I just suddenly realized, wait a minute, that's the story. I would never have done a book just about Holmes, nor would I have ever done a book just about the World's Fair. As fascinated as I was, the story was that these two things happened in the same place. At the same time, and when I say the same place, I mean you know blocks apart in the same place at the same time with the killer using the World's Fair as a lure for his victims. It was just perfect. It was like this is a story of darkness and light, darkness, the ultimate darkness, and on the other side, the ultimate civic goodness. You know, this effort to build a World's Fair to honor Chicago, to honor the United States for the sake of the world. You know, it was an amazing juxtaposition. So that's how that all came to be. There's also, they both uh, involved a lot of architecture because Burnham was creating, for the first time, the skyscraper. It was really invented by he and his cohorts there. And at the same time, Holmes was also architecting this house that, to me, started to remind me of of something like out of Auschwitz. Well, yeah, I mean, if if you think of sort of an architectural portrait of Dorian Gray, that's what was happening. I mean, or or Jekyll and Hyde, actually, an architectural Jekyll and Hyde. On the one hand, you had you had Burnham and his partner initially, John Root, who were the absolute pioneers of of high building architecture. And, you know, this was a time when the term skyscraper first uh, first appeared. They were doing all these these great great things, buildings that that people around the world admired. And then here was Holmes, who was sort of doing this sort of twisted kind of thing where he had he had a building that um, when he heard the fair was going to be um, in Jackson Park, very near his, his this apartment house that he owned, he began turning it into a hotel for World's Fair visitors, um, mainly, uh, if not exclusively, single young women who were coming to the fair. This is a three-story structure into which he built a chute for the disposal of bodies from the third floor to the basement, acid vats, lime pit, dissection tables, a crematorium, and an airtight vault, which he put to somewhat malevolent use. When you write these books, when, when we read them, they're meticulously researched histories. Every fact is, is there. You, you've said we could write our, the, our graduate theses from right. them. Um, but they read like page-turning novels. So tell me how you managed to create that sense of tension. It's just incredibly well-crafted. Yeah, I think that there are two things that, two things that I'm trying to do. One, one is, that, is that I think if you go the distance and really look for the detail, really look for the telling little things that are going to make these stories come alive, the stories will come alive in readers' minds. I mean, just you know, the fact that like Juicy Fruit Gum was introduced at the World's Fair. So detail comes first. It's not about making it up. It's about finding the right details. But then you have to sort of tell the story. And, you know, the key is, one of the key things is to find the right story to tell. You know, I mean, 
when I'm looking for the next idea, it is the toughest part of my career because it is the hardest part of my career. I mean, I've been looking now for the last six months for the thing that will be my next book, and I have I have not found it, and I'm going slightly crazy. Thank you. But I have not found it because only certain books will lend themselves. You can't just pick a subject and turn it into sort of what people like to call a narrative, you know, narrative a work of narrative nonfiction. You can't. You have to find the right story that has a built-in natural arc. That is to say that when you break that story down and tell it as the people who lived it experienced it, and that's, that's key also, you sort of break the story into its DNA and arrange it as it happened, as if nobody that you're writing about knew the ending, and as if nobody who's reading it knows the ending, very much the way Walter Lord, the pioneer of all this stuff, wrote in A Night to Remember about the Titanic. We all know the Titanic sank, you read A Night to Remember, you find yourself, oh, God, don't let this sink. <laughs> you know, it's that kind of thing. So you have to find the right story. What you have to find, though, within that story, it has to have the same things that work in fiction, and that is you need conflict. Um, you need a natural narrative arc, something that ascends towards something, toward a climax. And, you know, one of the, I, I, I mean, in, in, in Thunderstruck, um, it's a fairly classic narrative on the Marconi and Crippen sides. I mean, for Marconi, man sets out to do do what was literally considered the impossible against some really incredible obstacles. I mean, the destruction of those those stations, you know, within like a month of each other, which is one of the elements of the of the book. Is is I mean, some of these things are shocking that that he's he kept going, you know. So there's a classical narrative there. Man sets out against tremendous obstacles to achieve something. Same thing, in a way, with the Crippen story. Man, more and more and more and more and more oppressed, makes a break, you know, takes that, takes that, that step that I, I think so many people must have somehow, despite the grisly aspects of the whole thing, must have somehow yearned for in that era, because otherwise there's no reason, to th- no reason to that Crippen should have been so famous, you know, at the time, and such a big story. So, so he, he's working toward that climax, that escape, you know. So that, that's what works there. Devil in the White City, same thing. Burnham sets out to do the impossible. Again, Burnham was insane to take on the World's Fair of 1893. There was no reason that that should have succeeded, but it did, beyond anybody's imagination. The home side was a little trickier because I had sort of thought it would be kind of your basic murder mystery sort of sort of sort of narrative. One problem I hit early on was that there was not a lot of information about any one victim of Holmes. Nobody to hold your hand with, no Clarice Starling to walk through the whole thing. But what I found is that instead of that, what drove his story forward was this sort of accelerating creepiness, you know, that that he got worse and worse as time went on, culminating ultimately in what he did with the, those three kids and the family and so forth at the very end of the book. The guy became increasingly bizarre, and I, I was sort of counting on readers to say, I'm going to stick with this guy because I want to see what he does next. So that was those two narratives. So it's, it, you got to choose the right stories. Tell us a little bit about how you did some of the research for each of these books, because you're right. The details do stick with you. For example, in Thunderstruck, the thing that, that I remember was the invention of the shipboard newspaper. Just mm-hmm. all, one of these little great little details that really lights up. You think, wow, that yes. was then. That, 
seems yeah, yeah. obvious now. So. Yeah, it seems obvious now, and yet it's one of those things where they just sort of, for lack of anything better to do, they were doing all these wireless transmissions in one of the first uh, first ships that was equipped with wireless. And thought, let's start sending news, and then we'll publish the news for passengers. And that was the first shipboard newspaper. I love that stuff. Um, you know, it, it's. Um, do you acquire all the details first and then sift through them? I do. I do. I, I try to. I, I mean, I try to get as much as I can um, in in the box before I start to write. You can never never do it all. There's always a point where I'm I'm researching, 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 and I start feeling like you know I got to start writing. The writing wants to begin. You just you start feeling I got to write that down, and and the, gradually the writing becomes the dominant thing in the course of the day and there's sort of an interesting overlap of about six months but um, you know in, in finding the detail you need to amass as much as you can I love archives I love the more obscure the archive the better um, my MO I will go to some place like in the case of Thunderstruck I'll go to the British National Archives at Kew which are amazing I'll go to the British National Archives you know, search for the things that I think will be relevant, and I'll read them just enough to get a sense of whether this could even conceivably be valuable, and I'll photocopy. You know, it's expensive to photocopy with the exchange rate right now, and given what they charge at the archives, but it is very cost-effective because, you know, I left the archives um, with a couple of thousand of pages, and I shipped to my house um, a couple of more thousand pages from the National Archives in Britain because... It's a whole lot cheaper to pay that price and process all this stuff in the peace and quiet of my house and my office than to stay in a London hotel for six months, you know, eating out, at, especially at this exchange rate, you know. Um, so I do that. Then at home I process. The key is I, I, you can find the detail. And I think I have a pretty good ear for, for, for what's kind of fun. I mean... If you're reading a letter from somebody to somebody else, you know, a lot of people stop at the content of the letter. I'm real interested in the subtext. What's the stationery? Is the stationery from a ship? Is the stationery from a hotel? Where's the hotel? What is the handwriting like? In the case of Marconi, it's very interesting. As he got more and more confident, he began underlining his name in big black line. Very significant. Very significant, but, but minor little detail. So I love that stuff. National Archives, um, I was just delighted. You know, there, is, there is a way where when you send in a, a query to the, for a file at the, at the archives, the response will tell you if somebody else has that. And I was after this, this Metropolitan Police file, Scotland Yard file, which seemed like it might be important. And I kept getting this thing back saying that what looked to me like somebody had it. And I was thinking, oh my God, somebody else is doing the same book. You know, my, my big fear. And so, you know, days would pass. And finally, I just asked the, the person at the, at the desk, I said, you know, who has this book? I mean, what is this? And, and they said, oh, well, it's in our conservation department. Would you like to look at it? <laughs> so I went into the conservation department. Here was this thick file sitting on a table. I opened the file, and right on top was this amazing photograph of Inspector Dew, his partner, and some of the men from, the, from Scotland Yard who had done a certain excavation that is important to the book, standing there behind the house at which this excavation occurred, looking proud of themselves, looking like they had just 
you know, eaten the canary, right? But the thing that's amazing about this photograph is it could have been taken yesterday. It is gleaming. It is, it's black and white. It, is, it just pops. It's like, oh, my God. And what was underneath was probably about, you know, 1,500, 2,000 pages of some of the best material I've ever come across in an archive. So I said sort of meekly, can I, can I photocopy this? Well, sure. Sure, it'll cost, you know, whatever, but, and oh, man. And I, I had to send that forward because I just, I, I couldn't copy it in time before I had to leave London. So I had to trust that they would copy it, ship it, and that, in fact, I would get it. And I waited for like, like, like two weeks before it actually arrived, thinking, oh, my God, I'm not going to get this. I'm not going to get this. And then it came. And I was just, oh, man, it was amazing. It was an amazing moment. Tell us a little bit about, are you, so you're looking for a subject, but you haven't found one yet? Or? Right, right. I'm looking for a subject. Um, and I'm not, you know, I'm not looking at any one time period. I have to say, by the way, that even though these last three books were all um, kind of in the same 18, 19, 1910 period, it's not, I did not set out to do that. That just, it just happened. You know, one thing led to another, and, and that happened to be the area that I, I wound up writing. I love the area. Uh, the, the era, I love the the outlook. I love the sort of the sort of charming hubris that made people think they could do this stuff and all that went with it. Um, but I didn't set out to do that period. So now I'm I'm looking all over the place. I mean, I've I've considered ideas uh, during and before World War II. Um, I've considered ideas as far back as you know the late 17th and early 18th century. Um, but um, I have not um, settled on anything yet. One of nor nor am I close. Actually, I'm not even close. <laughs> One of the things you do quite well is what in the science fiction world is called world building. Mm-hmm. This is what, what I think what your books are are really effective at is that you create this world for us, and it's very different from our world. Could you talk a little bit about that idea of world building? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think that's that's I hadn't heard that term, but that's a great great observation. I mean, what I, again? My goal, you know, everything's absolutely accurate. Use it for whatever you want. Use it for your school term paper, whatever. But my goal is to create a historical experience. My goal is I, I think of myself as an animator of history. My goal is for you to start the book, and ideally not leave the book until you're done. I want you to sink into the past experience the past as it happened, and then then come back. My favorite reaction from somebody in Chicago to uh, Devil in the White City was this woman who stood up and seemed to be all, like almost near tears. She was probably just nervous, you know, but she, she said, she said, you know, I finished the book. I didn't want to come back. That's the kind of reaction I want. I want people to fall into that world. It's difficult to create that world, but again, I, you do it through detail. You do it through not just any detail, but the detail that will light something up in people's minds. It was a particularly challenging thing in terms of Edwardian London because, I mean, as an American, I began with a sort of set, certain set of sort of historical constructs about American cities. So Chicago was challenging then, but I understood you, you have a kind of a, a sense of what an American city early in its days is like and how people were. It's something we all kind of absorb over time. But I'm not English. I, you know, I've, I've, I have not, you know, had not spent a lot of time in Britain before starting this book. And so I, I felt I really had to do something to kind of get up to speed so that I could feel this world and not just, you know, pretend. 
And that was hard. It was hard. I had to find a lot of sort of far-flung details. Um, I, I found two sources that I can be quite specific about that were invaluable to me in this. Now, usually I don't use, um, I, don't, I don't do, I do virtually no research on the web. But in this case, there were two websites that were amazing. One was a website devoted to Charles Booth, who is the, um, a, a very prominent reformer in the period in the book. And he was a, he was a man who, who um, he's a businessman, and he was really becoming annoyed with the socialists because they were saying that there were so many poor people in London, and he, he, he set out to prove them wrong. Street by street, he set out to prove them wrong. He, he, he launched a survey in which he and various investigators he, he hired um, uh, or who would work with him um, would go street by street accompanying, accompanying police on their beats or school district. Uh, I can't remember the term for them, but the school district, had, the school board had people who visited every house in every neighborhood at, at various intervals. And he would go with, he would go with them, his people would go with them and take notes as they went. This website has his notebooks, uh, many of them reproduced photographically online. And you can find out through a search engine where which notebook is in which part of, part of London. And, you know, the, the couple in the book, uh, when the cataclysmic events occur, Crippen and his wife, is, is, is in a street called Hilldrop Crescent. And here in these notebooks, he is walking in Hilldrop Crescent. He sees the houses in Hill. He describes the houses in Hilldrop Crescent. He describes the houses all around, the environments, the cattle market next door. It is as if I am communicating with a research assistant back in time. It was an amazing tool because it gave me a real sense of the era. Um, the other thing was a was a was a website called the Bolus, as uh, the Bolus B O L L E S collection put up by Tufts University, which is amazing. Also, it's like. Uh, let's say a dozen works on um, done in the 1890s and as late as 1901, which, that where people, the writers, these are these are sort of essays and and sort of walking journals that were done at the time, not for purposes of a website, obviously, but for to sort of give their impressions of London at the time, uh, so that people who were travelers would read these books and you know know what to do and where to go. And so this website um, has, uh, you know, they apparently had, had somehow loaded all these books into a database um, and also keyed them to a map, to, to a number of maps, so that you can type in a street, let's say Hilldrop Crescent, and up will come every reference in those obscure books that nobody has heard of about Hilldrop Crescent. Now, unfortunately, there was not, I don't think there was anything in those books on Hilldrop Crescent, but the surrounding streets... Marconi streets where he had his offices. I was just, it was just an amazing thing to be able to read and not have to slog through these books, you know, you know, you know a thousand pages to find one street address, but to be able to get it instantly. To be able to read the perceptions of, of what this was like. And also like, also the history of New Oxford Street, which is one of the streets that's kind of critical to the book. It turns out that that once upon a time, I mean, it's almost as if they were sort of, sort of, you know, vibrations emanating from the past that made this area ideal for a murderer. I mean, this New Oxford Street before it became what it is, what it is now. Well, now meaning within the last hundred years in British time, um, uh, talked about the past on New Oxford Street before New Oxford Street was built, and the fact that it was built 
as a way of sort of wiping out this particularly corrupt part of Britain where people were known for, you know, con games and scams and so forth. And fast forward, whose office is there but, but Crippen, who was selling patent medicines, you know, and, and many other patent medicine firms were in the same place. So there was this, this weird historical thing that was going on. So that very, very valuable. But those are just two examples of things, yeah. As you've accumulated all this data and done, done all your research, how do you actually construct the narrative? Do you sit down and write it cover to cover? Do you have an outline? Do you have a, 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 a timeline database? I, I have all of those things. I do all of those things. I build the... the I mean, I, I could talk to you for hours about how I do this, but the most valuable weapon for me is, is my, my sort of main chronology. I build a primary chronology. Very much the way homicide detectives, any homicide detective who's investigating a case, there, there's always something called the murder book, and in that there is always a precise chronology because chronology is key. And my stories are always written in chronological order because they are stories. You write them because that's how, that's how they occurred in real life, and that's what I want <clears throat> readers to feel is that you know you are there, you're moving along as the story is going along. So my central chronology actually serves as a kind of, well, it serves as an outline ultimately, but, you know, it's more broadly festooned with things that will not end up in the book. But I just build this chronology. I mean, if I learn something happened on a certain date, um, it goes in that date on the chronology. As, and when I get to the final processing of my notes, I will start at the beginning of this whole pile of things on my floor and all my stuff, and I will just, in the course of one particularly agonizing period of probably about two weeks, I will just go through everything again and, and make sure everything's in the chronology. So the chronology will ultimately end up being about probably about 80 pages long with single space, with just details penned to each, each year. When the action starts to heat up, it's pegged to each day, each month, whatever is the relevant time period. And in some cases, times during a particular day, because it's important to know the sequence of events that day. And that is a very powerful tool. That's the book right there. I can read through that chronology and know where this book is going. And then at the very end, I have my epilogue, even on the chronology, where I say, okay, this is, this is stuff that doesn't fit in any natural place, but it's going to go in the epilogue. I know it. So, or it's a candidate for the epilogue, and that's going to go down at the end. That's the most powerful tool that I have. We've been speaking with Eric Larson. His new book, nonfiction book, is Thunderstruck. Thank you for talking with me, Eric. Thank you for having me. These are great questions. Thanks. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.